welcome to Draft Countdown. My name is Scott Wright from DraftCountdown.com. And I'm Shane P. Hallam from DraftTV.com. For this episode, we are going to talk about underclassmen, but as we're recording this, Shane, I think the current tally stands at 73, and there's probably going to be, who knows, another 15, 20 more before the deadline in a couple of days, so... We talked about it, and it's just not feasible to go through and talk about every one of these guys, and and there's going to be plenty of time. We're going to hit on uh, the vast majority of them between now and draft day anyways, but I figured what we would do is we each chose five guys from the the list of underclassmen who have already declared, players that we've been watching recently and and kind of doing our evaluations on, and we're just going to kind of discuss them. So so that's the game plan for the show, and and then at the end we're also going to discuss uh, Ohio State quarterback Cardale Jones, who has one of the most interesting underclassmen decisions that I can remember in all my years covering the NFL draft. So we're going to save that for the very end. But before we get into the underclassmen, Shane, some uh, big news in the NFL draft world broke recently. Uh, Texas A&M offensive tackle Cedric Abui unfortunately suffered a torn ACL in the Liberty Bowl. And it's obviously going to negatively impact his draft stock. And and he was already trending downward to a certain degree because he didn't have the the type of senior campaign that most anticipated. So when you combine that with the knee injury, the major knee injury at that, it really kind of throws his draft stock uh, in flux. But, you know, Shane, I've heard people compare the situation to that of Brandon Thomas from Clemson last year, uh, who wound up going late in the third round to the San Francisco 49ers. But I think there's two very important distinctions to make between the two situations. First of all, Obui's injury happened four months earlier in the process, so there's a much better chance that you're going to get something out of him as a rookie, whereas with Thomas, you kind of knew it was basically going to be a redshirt his first season in the pros. So I think that's one important distinction. But the other thing is the position. Uh, Brandon Thomas was considered maybe a late first-round type, but probably more of a top-50 value, but he was not a tackle. He was going to be moving inside to guard most likely. So, uh, whereas Abui is definitely a tackle, we can still debate left or right, but he's going to play tackle, and, and certainly that's a more valuable position than on the interior. So uh, that's why I don't think Abui is going to fall as far as Thomas did, but I mean, it, it's really hard to say. I mean, it, those medical checkups are going to be key, and, and hopefully the surgery and his rehab goes well. He's obviously not going to be able to uh, participate in, in the, the the All-Star game, the, sen- the All-Star game process, the Senior Bowl. Uh, he'll be limited at the scouting combine to just the medicals and the interviews. So uh, it, it's, it's kind of hard at this point. It's still so early to get a read. I would still say he's in the top 50, worst case top 75 overall. I still think he goes pretty early and Boy, if if he escapes the second round, I, I think that's a great value, and, and and there are question marks there, obviously, both with his game and his health. But uh, I think by the time you get into that second round range, he's going to look a lot more enticing than some of the other options. So, uh, what are your thoughts on his stock, Shane? How about how much do you think this is going to hurt him? It's harsh because he was. It wasn't as if he was having a great season, and this happened. And you could say coming into the year. He's supposed to be the number one offensive tackle for sure, and really didn't play like it. So now you compound that, where I think I'd say he was falling a little bit. His stock was was on the way down for the season. You compound that with the injury, and and that that pushes him out of the first round. I, I'm I'm with you. 
I don't think he falls out of the top 100 or even to the back end of it like Brandon Thomas did, who went at pick 100. Someone will take a chance in that second round because you still have insane athletic ability. You still have a player who you've seen play right tackle extremely successfully and play left tackle in the major college conference and still do fine. I don't want to take anything away from him and act like he was a disaster, um, but he just wasn't the, the, the stud every play that we expected. So I think a team will still take a chance on him, and this opens the door for a team that's good, that doesn't maybe have an immediate need this year, but has a need uh, in a year or has thin depth and will eventually want a new offensive tackle in there to take him in the second or third round. And, and then he's, he's someone they can bring along slowly rehab and only use him if they really need him. And you can end up with uh, Steele, a, a guy who has athletic ability at a premium position uh, that, that could have went number one overall. Uh, last year or close to it. You know, he could have been the top offensive tackle at the bo- off the board at the very least. Um, but I, I, so I, I, I still, I still feel like he's going to go high. I would even, I'd even lean into the top 50. I think I would say he'll still go in the top 50 and that, that mid second round range will look very enticing. Well, get well soon, Cedric Abui. It's a shame to see that happen, especially to a guy who went back for his senior campaign, tried to do all the right things, but uh, unfortunately, injuries are just part of the game, and uh, he got bit by it uh, at, at, at a, a, an opportune time. But, you know, as they say, Shane, it's not how you come into the league. It's what you do when you get there. So uh, while this is disappointing, especially for a buoy, uh, it's certainly by no means the end of the line for him. Uh, he's going to have ample opportunity to, to enjoy a, a very long pro career. So best wishes to him, and it's a shame that it had to happen. But uh, let's get into some underclassmen, Shane. And, uh and we're just going to kind of take turns going back and forth uh, discussing the, the the players we chose to discuss. And uh, I'm going to start, I'm going to lump my first two together, actually, because uh, they are related and kind of joined to the hip to a certain degree. And, and we're going to talk about, start out talking about Randy Gregory from Nebraska and Shane Ray from Missouri. Uh, kind of the, I would say probably the consensus top two pass rushers in this class, or, or the majority at least feel they're the top two pass rushers in this class, but still some discussion to be had. Who's one, who's two? Is it 1A, 1B? Uh, and after they declared, certainly I've watched them throughout the season, but after they declared, I wanted to take a real deep dive and look at both of them really closely. So I watched three more games on each. To And honestly, the reason I did it too was to, to kind of for my own for my own rankings here, I'm, I'm getting ready to incorporate underclassmen into the rankings and do a new top 100 overall. And I, I kind of wanted to answer for myself who's going to be who's going to be rated higher on my board and and the the results of watching those games were somewhat surprising to me it wasn't exactly what i expected and ultimately i came out of it liking ray a little more than i thought i would and gregory a little less than i thought i would so uh, i'll talk about some of the reasons here uh gregory to start with I mean, he looks the part. Uh, I mean, and like I always say, I'm a sucker for those pass rushers with the, the the tall, rangy frames and the long arms. And Randy Gregory absolutely has that. But I guess my maybe my my biggest takeaway from watching both Gregory and Ray was the position. 
watching Gregory, I thought he had a chance to maybe be more of a that that true four three defensive end. But I got to tell you, I was much more impressed with Gregory when he played on his feet as opposed to when he played with his hand in the dirt. I thought he was much more explosive uh, playing uh, on his feet and rushing off the edge. Where when he had his hand on the ground, I thought he was just a, a little slower off of the snap. And and he moves so well. He's got such excellent range. I, I think he can absolutely play outside linebacker in the NFL, especially in a 3-4 scheme. So I came away thinking his best fit might actually be a 3-4 outside linebacker as opposed to 4-3 defensive end as I anticipated going in. And then in regards to Shane Ray, the exact opposite happened. Uh, I kind of thought because of his lack of size, he's he's not nearly as long as Gregory is. They list him at, I believe, 6'3", 245, uh, but he does have long arms. But the thing with Shane Ray is I watched him a little bit, and there weren't a lot of opportunities to see him play in reverse and play in space, but the ones I did see, I wasn't overly all that impressed. Uh, He looked a little stiff and uncomfortable working in reverse, and I have some question marks now about whether or not he can play outside linebacker in the pros, and I almost wonder if his best uh, position isn't going to be as a down 4-3 defensive end, because, and and that's the other thing, too – Ray is much more explosive off the snap than Gregory is. I mean, he is a tear, maybe just a notch below Vic Beasley, who I think is elite in the, in that regard in terms of that burst and that that quick first step. But uh, Shane Ray is just a notch below that, and and, and much more refined pass rusher than Ga- Gregory. Uh, he has a uh, more more pass rush moves and counters, uh, and is just a little more nifty. Whereas Gregory, you see all of the tools, but I think there's going to be a little bit more development needed there from a technical uh, standpoint with him. So I I was a little surprised, and and I still prefer Gregory over Ray slightly, but it's a lot closer than I thought it would be before I watched those three extra games on each of them, Uh, uh, especially the position-wise. I was was really surprised that I came away thinking Gregory 3-4 outside linebacker and Shane Ray 4-3 defensive end. Now, just one piece of the puzzle is the film. We're going to see in pre-draft work we're going to see these guys go through those linebacker drills. So there's going to be a much better opportunity to, to really zero in on those aspects of their games to figure out where their best fit is going to be. But uh, I, I know I covered kind of a lot there, Shane, but you can kind of jump in and, and kind of follow up or ask any questions on, on any or all of what I've, I've discussed so far on those guys. And, or maybe you can concur. Do you disagree? Uh, what do you got? Well, let me ask you this, because I, I found myself struggling, too. I think both of us uh, early with Shane Ray, I, I felt like the hype train was a little too much, and I was a little bit weary. But late in the season, really continued to play well and was impressive. And then I've liked Gregory for, for quite a while. But th- this premium position for both of these players, they're probably both going to go very high. And you talk about the schemes. Do you think now with, with what you've seen there, Scott, and kind of identifying uh, what you've identified, maybe Greg would be better standing up, Ray, Ray with his hand down. Do you think it will depend on the team? If, you're, if there's a team picking at three or four um, in the draft and needs a pass rusher and they have to decide between these two players, are they going to just go with who fits their scheme better, um, kind of as you said, or do you think that that – that Gregory is going to be the better player and the team will opt, uh, you know, opt to take him almost no matter what and fit him in. Um, that's, that's always my question. I think it's one of the toughest things about pass rushers and front seven guys 
is a lot of it is based on scheme. Is that going to separate these two on who goes higher? It's just going to depend who's the first team to eat the pass rusher and what they run, or, or do you think a player will grade higher fairly consistently on boards? Yeah, I, I think the, the, the team's uh, particular needs are going to play a huge role in it. And, and as we've talked about in the past, all 4-3 and all 3-4 defenses aren't necessarily the same. You could you could mm-hmm. have two teams that run a 3-4 defense, and they might be looking for drastically different things from that position. So uh, there, there's definitely a lot of dominoes left to fall here. And, and you look at a team like the Tennessee Titans, at number two overall, they could be looking at a pass rusher. Who would they prefer? Uh, their defensive coordinator, Ray Horton, uh, it, when he was in Arizona and, and even in uh, Tennessee now, he, he has kind of the, he's had some of the shorter, stockier guys, whereas when he was in Cleveland, they, he, I'm sure, they drafted Barkevius Mingo, who's kind of more of the Gregory type. And I think what it might come down to, the other factor beyond the, the scheme fit and the team needs, is are, are you willing to gamble on Gregory's potential? Because I think if you're looking for a guy who's going who's gonna to be more of a finished product and is going to be able to come in and help you right away, I think Shane Ray is clearly the more polished player, whereas two, three years from now, I think Gregory has a higher upside. So uh, I, I think the mindset of the decision makers in the organizations is going to play a role in that too. Uh, do we want more of the sure thing and the finished product, or do we want to roll the dice on, on what Randy Gregory could be as opposed to what he is right now? Uh, so, so I, I, th- I think that's the other factor that that's going to be uh, going to be big in, in, in this decision, and and there's going to be plenty of teams near the top of the draft that are going to be looking for pass rushers. I mean, you look, both of those guys could be in play for. I mean, I think the Buccaneers are going to take a quarterback at one, but they could use more pass rush help. The Titans, the Jaguars, the Raiders. I mean, the Jets. Who doesn't need a pass rusher? Every team in the league is always looking for pass rushers. And then certainly, if you get to the back end, you have the Atlanta Falcons at eight. They need a pass rusher. Uh, the Giants at nine. They certainly uh, have, aren't shy about about grabbing defensive linemen with premium draft picks. So uh, it's going to be an interesting conversation, and I think the the debate's going to rage on between those two uh, throughout this pre-draft process and right up till draft day and, and I don't know that there is a right or wrong answer I think it's pretty close it's just kind of what flavor of ice cream do you prefer what are you looking for what are you in the mood for but I will say this I think there's a chance that Randy Gregory could get Anthony Bard and by that I mean remember last year leading up to the draft uh, all of a sudden Anthony Barr people start picking him apart finding flaws in his game and uh, it, it shouldn't have been a shock that there were some holes in Anthony Barr's game. He had only been playing the linebacker position on defense for a couple of years, uh, but as he showed in the NFL, he deserved to go in the top 10 overall. But I wouldn't be surprised if people start picking apart Randy Gregory a little bit because uh, uh, b- because he's not the strongest guy, because of his tweener status, because he lacks that polish. So, you know, if Randy Gregory slides that back into the top 10, I think somebody could get a steal there. But I wouldn't be shocked if, if he starts to get dinged a little bit during this pre-draft process as, as people really start to, to dig in and, and, and maybe in some cases overanalyze to a degree. I, I, th- I think it's a definite possibility, and I think Shane Bray is, one, is a player that kind of came on the scene pretty pretty quickly this, se- this year, whereas Randy Gregory was a name known going into the season, and I think it's that overexposure piece a lot of times when we've just been hearing about some of the same guys for a long time, you can, uh, there, no one's perfect. You can always find flaws in someone's game. It's just about how much do you blow that up and how much will that really affect how they play on the field. And, and I think your point on Anthony Barr was a great example. 
So uh, let, let's move on. We talked about my first two guys. Uh, let's let's talk about uh, let, let's do two for you since I went two. Uh, let's, let's jump into your first guy and then we'll do another one to to even it up. All right, sounds good. Well, let's, let's hit a couple skill positions since we did some linemen. Uh, I think one of the, one of the big discussion points, and I'm definitely interested to hear your thoughts, Scott, is is Oklahoma wide receiver and former Missouri wide receiver Doyle Green Beckham coming out to, for the draft. Um, and, and man, I, I remember when Green Beckham when he was coming out of high school, five star recruit, number one recruit in the country. Uh, this this wide receiver who was just absolutely massive and looked looked the part six six two hundred twenty five pounds he could fly he, he had the length he he dominated at the high school level and then he decided to go to Missouri who stay home go to Missouri and people thought he was going to go to one of these big schools and really dominate and and then at Missouri uh, he wasn't exactly dominating you know last season. Um, Talking 2013, you have 59 catches, 883 yards, 12 touchdowns, including uh, 144 yards and two touchdowns against Auburn, who went to the national title game that year when they played them in the SEC title. So he's had a couple good games, but it isn't as if he's been a dominant college receiver. Now, that's on the field. And then off the field, there's an abundance of issues. Not all of them are necessarily out there or known, but it was essentially kicked off the team at Missouri. Um, there, there were some, some domestic altercations, and it might be a lot more uh, below the surface. He transferred to Oklahoma, obviously had to sit out a year and practice with the team, but opted to come into the NFL after the season without ever having played a snap for the Oklahoma Sooners. And I have seen the kind of the, the, the talks of him all over the map. Uh, he's, he's a super talented first round wide receiver. You have to take a chance on the off the field issues and you got to take them. Um, or that the character stuff with today's NFL, what happened this year, too big. He's going to fall to the third day. Maybe it's an Isaiah Crowell situation where he falls super far. goes undrafted because of this. And I, so I went back. I wanted to really watch, some of the games, I watched that Auburn game where he had a really good game. I uh, watched some games where he didn't do as well. And he's, he is super talented. I don't think there's any doubt that when you have a player that's 6'6", 225 pounds, um, that he, it's going to be tough to match up with him. But he wasn't as dominant as I, I expected him to be. You know, I, I expected him to look like uh, a man amongst boys, even as a sophomore out there, and even in the SEC, um, with with his size, with his length, and with the pedigree. And I don't not necessarily come away with that. I think he, I think he's a great, he's a talented player. But I think we've had a lot of these players, uh, for one reason or another, have been very, very talented, have, have dominated even at the college level. The Derrick Rogers, um, guys like that, that have not made it in the NFL. When, when they haven't been, haven't had that experience, haven't had that consistency, and haven't had the head to go through it. So I, he scares me a lot. I, I would not be uh, a player. I'm not always a super character plug guy, but uh, the issues sound like they are bountiful with him, and I would not be someone to take a chance on him, even in the top 100. I think it would be very scary, even with the talent. So I, I want to hear your thoughts, Scott, or if you have follow-up questions or whatnot um, on – Doriel Green Beckham, where where could he go, and and really what 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 is the upside that we're looking at with a player like this? I, it seems like a very unique situation in a lot of ways to me. Well, and, and you alluded to it. The X factor is going to be the character, and I always say this is where those 
uh, those of us who operate outside the league are at a huge disadvantage with character and medical issues because we're just not privy to the information and we don't have the resources the teams do to to investigate it and and by all accounts uh, Green Beckham has a long history of off-the-field issues, not only the one that uh, ultimately got him dismissed from Missouri and led to his transfer, but even dating back to his high school days. So teams are really going to have to do their due diligence in, in, in looking into him. Uh, one thing I will say, though, too, is – well, actually, before I get to that, Shane, let, let me ask you, who, A, who, who would you compare him to? What NFL wide receiver does he kind of maybe remind you of? And B, let's say he didn't have character issues. Let's say he played the past three seasons at Missouri, uh, and you know you wa- you said you watched him, but that was freshman sophomore tape, so you're still a young kid then. Let's say he played his junior year, continued to develop, didn't have off the field issues. How high could he have gone in this draft? If he was clean off the field and that he continued to improve, I think there was a definite improvement from freshman to sophomore year, um, statistically as well as on the field. If he could continue to improve there and shown that he was a dominant force, I mean, the sky is the limit. I think we could be talking about a top five player. There's little doubt of the, the physical talent, size, skill. Um, a comparison standpoint on the field, I, and then this will be kind of the, I, I would say, the upside of him. I think the, the upside of him from a talent perspective, I don't think he hit this in college yet. Uh, to me, it would be like Andre Johnson. I, I think he has that type of long-limbed foot speed that's, that's deceptive, can go up and get passes, uh, but still has that athletic profile that becomes tough to match up with, even if you're against a very athletic corner, uh, that he can beat you physically. He can also beat you uh, with his athleticism and with his speed. So those, that, that, the combination of all these different traits that just make him uh, a very rare prospect from, from size, speed, and athleticism perspective. But, uh, so if he, had, if he had continued and his nose was clean, uh, and that, that's what gets me is the potential is off the charts. I think that's why a lot of people think you, you have to take him somewhere and still in the first round because the potential is to be a not just a great NFL receiver but a dominant NFL receiver. And it's what he should have been in college and just never was. I don't know if his head just was not focused on it, uh, if, if there were those distractions, uh, but that never happened. So it's, it's, it's too much of a risk to me. But, um, man, the, the upside there is, is out of this world. Well, and – and going back to what you asked me, where do I think he would he's going to go? And I, I could see anything from second round to undrafted, and everything in between. But let's let's assume a team investigates his off the field issues and feels comfortable with him. I still don't think he goes in the first round. I know some people do. I think. I think best case scenario, second, third round. You look at the Honey Badger, Tyron Matthew. Now, I, I think he's a little more physically talented and more of the prototype at the position than Matthew was, but I think second and third round is where you take that flyer if you're comfortable with his character. And and when you think about it, look at that second tier of receivers, uh, the Ty Montgomery's, the Justin Hardy's, the Rashad Green's, the Nelson Aguilar's, guys like that. Uh, I, I mean, Doriel Green Beckham at six six two and a quarter is a vastly different type of prospect and is going to be not only more talented but physically unlike the maybe any other option that's going to be available beyond the first round. So I think that's something to keep in mind. 
Uh, and the other reason, too, I think he might not go in the first round. Well, two, really. First of all, his most recent issue, the one that got him kicked out of Missouri, domestic violence. And that's that's scary for teams in this post-Ray Rice world. So, so that we don't exactly know how that's going to affect prospects, but if you're going to have an off-the-field concern, that's the wrong one to have at this point in time. And the other factor to keep in mind is, we had so many great wide receivers in last year's class, just an historically great crop of wideouts. So a lot of teams, they've already addressed the position. I mean, how many teams are going to have wide receiver as a first, second, third priority on their list? A lot of them got a good one just a year ago. So they might not be in the market for one, especially one who maybe has as much of a risk factor as Doriel Green Beckham does. So I guess, like I say, I know I'm hedging here, but I would say if a team gets comfortable with him off the field, I think second, third round. But would it shock me if he fell to day three or even went undrafted? No, and and it's just, and I don't think the teams know at this point either. I think the teams are going to have a lot of work left to do on Doriel Green Beckham before they decide exactly at what point the potential rewards, which are incredible, justify the potential risks, which are equally as daunting. I want to move on to to my second guy here, and I'm with the running back position, where I think it's a, a solid running back group as a whole. You have Todd Gurley, you have Melvin Gordon. We've talked about Tevin Coleman on the show. We've talked about a number of these running backs, um, but one guy who is electric and has, I think, getting a lot of hype and continue to, but I still struggle on where to put him, is Duke Johnson, the running back out of Miami, another high recruit coming out of high school. Um, and, and Duke Johnson has been a difference maker for the Miami Hurricanes. There's no doubt about it. Now, he's, he's 5'9", 194 pounds. So it isn't like we're talking about a player that's 180 pounds and, and very thin, um, but he definitely is not – uh, built to be a work workhorse blocking back every down three down player. Um, I've seen him listed as high as in the the 200s, so I, and, and as down as 190. So I think I think his, his weigh in at the combine is going to be very important to see what's his weight and what's his speed. Where where can he maintain that? He could be the fastest player at the combine. He could be in the four twos. I think he runs like that on the field and is absolutely that electric. Um, so, to me, in, in today's NFL, it becomes difficult, because I think, I think a lot of teams want to have committees. We're seeing more and more teams, and, and it continues to at least have someone to spell your, your back. But we've also seen some dominant three-down running backs this year, Le'Veon Bell, DeMarco Murray, players that can run the ball, that can block, that can catch, and, and that can be bailouts for their team. I don't know if Duke Johnson is that. So how does he compare to Melvin Gordon, who's a little bit bigger, still has that electric ability? How does he compare uh, to uh, someone like Tevin Coleman, who uh, I think has those, those three-down tendencies and they're going to they're be in a, in a similar range on that second day? Um, I, I, I struggle with it because I think Duke Johnson could be one of the most exciting backs in the NFL. Um, but I, I don't know if you're going to want to put him on the field when you're throwing the football and your quarterback's going to check down to have him block for you. I don't know if you want that. I think as a return guy, throwing it to him in the flat, giving it to him and letting him get outside, he could be absolutely dynamic. Um, but I always struggle with these types of running backs, and maybe it's a flaw in, in, in me of where, you know, where am I willing to take this type of player and how am I willing to utilize this type of player? Because it's not, it's not always when Jamal Charles – 
uh, turns into a stud that can do all those things. I think it's very rare to have a player, and maybe Duke Johnson's it, but um, maybe I'm the only one, Scott, but I I have trouble saying Duke Johnson is a a top three back in this draft and and putting him on par with Melvin Gordon and Todd Gurley right now. I I would put him a step below because I'm scared that he's just never going to be that first option for your team at the running back position. Well, and we've already had 12 underclassmen running backs declare for the 2015 NFL draft, I believe is the latest count. And, 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 and you mentioned the big question mark with Duke Johnson is the size. And, and he's actually a little bit, they list him a little bigger than, than, than you mentioned, Shane. They list him at 206 now. So I don't know how accurate that is, but on the Miami website, they got him at 206. But even there, he's still the smallest of that, say, top five, top seven group of running backs uh, with not only Melvin Gordon, but uh, uh, Todd Gurley, but also Tevin Coleman, Jay Ajay, Buck Allen, Mike Davis. Uh, he's still the smallest of that group, TJ Yeldon. Uh, and, and I think a different player than most of, got, of those guys in that group. So I guess my question to you, Shane, is because, I mean, I, I've watched Duke Johnson, obviously, over a course of a number of years now, uh, but, but I haven't really taken a super deep dive with a really critical eye on him just yet. So my question for you, is this a Michael James situation, or do you think he can be a starting running back? Because, like I said, uh, you mentioned we were talking about the size so much. They list him at 5'9", 206. Well, the first running back drafted last year was Bishop Sankey, and he was 5'9 and a half, 209. So not that much smaller than the first running back off the board last year. So what type of role do you see him in? Do you think he's definitely a situational third down back, or do you think there's a chance he could be more than that and, and maybe not a workhorse he's not going to be uh, Eddie Lacy where you give him the ball 30 times a game, but do you think he could be a primary runner for an NFL team? I, I think he could be, especially when you compare him to LaMichael James, you compare him to Dre Archer, you compare him to those types of runners where you, we, we kind of want to fit him into that hole. If he if he comes into the combine and he weighs in as listed at 206, which I think might be a little bit generous, but we'll see what ends up happening. Um, you know, if, that, if that's the case, then I think I'll feel a lot better um, about him. I, you know, the, he has been listed at different weights throughout his playing career. I think I referenced an earlier one at 194. So if he's actually bulked up and kept that speed now going into it, coming out of his third season, then that's, that's a big positive to me that he could do it. Um, but I, I think my big fear is, do I really want to send him up the middle? Do I really want to block it for my quarterback? And uh, that's, that's one area where I have not seen him do it. I haven't seen him do that consistently. I haven't seen him do that well. And if I'm going to have, if you have him on the field, you cannot tip a defense as to what you're going to do. It's just not going to work. I think a lot of talented running backs don't get on the field, not because they're not talented, but just because there's no formation you can pull out that the defense is going to be confused. They're going to know what's coming. And that, that is my fear with Duke Johnson. So that's why I, I have him still in, in the top 100. Um, but I, I think I have probably have him lower than a lot of people do because of that fear. And when you compare him to, as you said, all those underclassmen running backs coming out, um, I think you, you get a lot of guys that, that are going to be able to do almost everything. And, and Duke Johnson, if, if he comes out, 
two, he weighs 205, he runs a, a 4-2 something, um, then, then I think I'll, I'll change my tune a little bit. But uh, it's going to be a fine balance, and these type of running backs, you have to find that balance, or you can, you can get knocked out of the league pretty quick. Well, and I think the consensus is that you have a top tier at the running back position of Gordon and Gurley, and then uh, I think Johnson's in that discussion with the second tier, along with guys like Jay Ajayi from Boise State, Buck Allen from USC, Tevin Coleman from Indiana, maybe Mike Davis from South Carolina, guys like that. And and I guess I kind of made this point uh, with with a uh, Doriel Green Beckham too, but I, I think it's it's pertinent here as well. He's gonna he's gonna offer you something different than the guys he's competing for draft position with. I, I think he's gonna clearly be the fastest and most explosive, uh, and and maybe even the best all around player of that that second tier of the running back position. And I think one thing that we can maybe take away from last year's NFL draft was that that position might be becoming very much a case of beauty in the eye of the beholder. I mean, going into the draft last year, we didn't necessarily expect Bishop Sankey to be the first running back off the board, but that's who the Titans like. So uh, I, I think that could be the case this year again, too, especially with that second tier after Gordon or Gurley. It's like, what are you looking for specifically for your team? Because, I mean, you can make a case for Johnson. You can make a case for Ajay. You can make a case for a lot of different guys. It, it might just individual team is looking for if they're willing to invest in a running back that early. So uh, I, I think that's something to keep in mind, too. But, uh, you know, he, boy, what a productive, exciting, explosive player. And, uh, and, and, and he's going to be right in, I think, too, in that top 100 mix, somewhere second to the third round. But uh, it, the running back position is kind of a situation where all bets are off. We just don't exactly know because we don't how it's going to shake out because this is kind of uncharted territory with the position being devalued the way it has. We don't know what's going to happen to arguably elite guys like Gurley and Gordon. So even further down the line, it's even harder to project. But I think the one thing Johnson has working in his favor is that he brings maybe a little bit different skill set uh, and, and different body type to the table than, than some of the guys he's competing with. Uh, let's move on. My next guy I want to talk about is Max Vallis, outside linebacker out of Virginia. And I think you have a Virginia player too, Shane, so we'll, we'll kind of lump them together and we'll talk about him next. But we'll start with Vallis, and uh, a lot of people weren't familiar with him, and, 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 and rightfully so. He was only a true sophomore in terms of his eligibility, but he was technically eligible to enter the 2015 NFL draft because he spent a year after high school at a prep school. So it's been three years since he uh, graduated high school. Uh, so, and, and once again, it's a case where you, you know about him, but it was a surprise that he, he came out, especially because he had announced about a month prior that he intended to return to school. And, and I always caution everybody. I always caution everybody, things can change really quick. Don't necessarily take uh, take underclassmen at their word when they say they're going to return to school a, a month before the draft. And uh, I think this is another example of that. But uh, a, a, a very productive player. He only played two years there at, at Virginia for the Cavs, but, but, but made the most of that limited action. In two years, he finished with 18 tackles for a loss. 13 sacks he broke up 12 passes so uh very productive in his couple of years there and uh you know I, I watched three games on him and my my first inclination is I wish he had gone back to school uh I, I think he absolutely could have used another year of development he, he's very raw 
and and that's not totally unexpected. And and part of the NFL draft when doing what we do, Shane, is we're projecting what guys can be, not necessarily what they are right now. Uh, I, I think the first thing to talk about is looks the part. I mean, uh, almost looks like a Barkevius Mingo uh, with that long, rangy frame. Uh, he's 6'5", 240 pounds. He, he moves really well. And even though he was listed as an outside linebacker, he was basically utilized as a stand-up defensive end in their scheme. Uh, there weren't a lot of opportunities to see him operate in space or drop into coverage. So I think that's a question mark that he's going to have to answer during this pre-draft process. But he's got the physical tools. He's got really impressive athleticism. And, and even though he is raw, he, he just seems to have a nose for the big play. Uh, uh, there was one game where he batted down, I believe, four passes in the game, uh, and, and it just seems to be around the action. But in that game where he batted down all those passes, one of the reasons was because he would get stonewalled at the point of attack, and all he had left that he could do was throw his arms up and try to disrupt that way because he didn't have the pass rush moves or counters to to get off the block once the big offensive lineman clamped onto him so uh this is a case where he's an edge player but i don't see a 4-3 defensive end i think he's going to be an outside linebacker he's more of a finesse player and a lot of potential all the potential in the world and i think if he had stayed another year maybe even a first round pick uh right now i have a day two grade on him uh and and even that's based more on potential than the actual film because even though he was pretty productive uh, it's very clear watching the film that, that, that he's a work in progress. and uh, there, He has all potential world. There's no telling how good he can be, but I, I think he might get overdrafted just a slight bit based on what he could be as opposed to maybe what he is right now. I, I, I tend to agree with you, and I still have a lot more work to do on him and, and, and his teammates who, who I'll, I'll bring up here um, and we can kind of talk about them both in, in tandem, but I, I think I think Max Fallis is interesting being a true sophomore, having that year of prep school, and not you don't you don't see that. So even if a guy's a redshirt sophomore, which is rare to come out, though it's happening more and more, you've at least had that year of practice and knowing the, the system scheme a lot of times, at least getting acclimated to college football. And he in the strength that, program. Exactly. You're getting bigger, you're getting stronger. So only two years in a program is so rare uh, to have going to the NFL that, that I'm, I'm kind of with you. You see the potential of if he could learn uh, a little more variety of pass rush moves here, if he could read a little bit better here, do a little bit better here, this guy's a stud. Um, and, and how do you project that to the NFL draft? Where where does that come from? Um, and then I, I feel a way a little bit with his teammate Eli Harold is one of the guys – because I was after seeing both of them declare, I wanted, I really wanted to watch them, and and both thoroughly impressed me. Eli Harold, um, who is a defensive end for Virginia, and is used as such, you know, where he's he. It's kind of weird. Dallas is running and rushing every play. Harold's playing base end. He's he's pass rushing a ton, but th- there are times when he also gets his hands up and disrupts things. He had an interception against Florida State where they actually uh, tried to drop him back a little bit, and he made a good play. So, yeah, I feel like he's actually shown more versatility not playing linebacker than they've had Vallis done playing linebacker. Uh, and I think Harold's a lot more polished, 
but doesn't have that upside. He doesn't have the, those times when I, I marvel at his length and marvel at the, the reaction time, but he's, he's very knowledgeable um, in terms of his football IQ. I think he can tell that and tell how he, he can learn and beat offensive tackles in, in, in different ways. And Harold, very productive, too. This whole Virginia defense was very, very good. Harold had seven sacks this year, uh, 6'4", 250 pounds, very good. I think both these players, I mean, bo- both these guys, I would put in the top 50 right now, which it's not like we always talk about the Virginia Cavalier defense as being, being one of the tops in the country, but I, I think both of them have a place in the NFL. Well, and I totally agree with what you said about Harold being the better player right now and Vallis maybe having more potential long-term. And, and that's going to make it very interesting to see what happens to them in the draft. We're, we're, we're kind of going to get to see what teams maybe prioritize. Do they go with the polish, the player who's ready to contribute now, or are they more willing to, to gamble on the, the upside of Vallis? So it, it's going to be really interesting. But uh, you, you mentioned Harold, and he was the next guy you want to talk about, and you, and you already mentioned him. But let me ask you – from, from evaluating him, have you made a determination yet on defensive end, outside linebacker? Are they both still in play? Did you rule one out? Do you have a preference for him? Uh, I guess I'm interested in your thoughts on Harold's position. I I think he could play both, but uh, I think we, we've seen – I think you've seen him stand up and play a little bit of kind of – similar to a three, four outside linebacker role at times. And I honestly think that's his best. That's Eli Harold's best role too. Um, even though he he's listed as a defensive end, I think he'd be better as, as a linebacker and standing up and dropping back a little bit and getting him in space where he doesn't always have his hand down at the point of attack. You know, Virginia uses uh, multiple bases in their defense and you, you see Harold, especially, do a lot of different things, and and when he plays base end, he's not always good at it. Um, I don't think he always gets that leverage that you need, but when he stands up, then he becomes a, a lot more of a terror when he gets a little bit of that motor running. So I like him as a linebacker too, which is is tough to say when I, I, I'm with you on the evaluation of Vallis being probably better standing up and finding a way to utilize him standing up as a pass rusher as well. So uh, let me ask you to come back. What, who would you take uh, just at this point? And we're still very early in the process. Let me reiterate, you know, it's, it's not even mid January yet. So there's a lot more to watch when guys are flying out and underclassmen are flying out um, that they're declaring. I haven't watched all of their games yet, but at this point in the process, Scott, who would you take? Would you opt uh, maybe, maybe this is even a philosophical question. Would you opt for that potential over maybe someone like Harold, who's a little more polished right now? Yeah, and, and, and I think once again, I have to go back to, like I always say, I'm a sucker for those long-rangey pass rushers, and I think I'd probably lean slightly toward Vallis' potential. And he, he, he kind of reminded me at times of Barkevius Mingo. Uh, he's got that kind of build to him, uh, just really almost glides around the field. So I, I see some shades of Kiki Mingle there with him, who I was a fan of. Uh, uh, so I, I guess I'd lean a little more in that direction. And, and uh, But I, I mean, both of these guys, I think these, these pre-draft workouts are going to be integral for the evaluation. As with, oh, I mean, 
a lot of these pastors prospects, Randy Gregory, Shane Ray, uh, Dante Fowler Jr., both Harold and, and Vallis, and, and a number of others, we have to. I think they're, we're, we're still missing that piece of the puzzle. So that's why I'm always interested to, to to watch these tweeners go through those linebacker drills at the scouting combine, and that's what's one of my favorite parts of the process because I think you get some really strong insight uh, when you're trying to make these tough decisions, trying to figure out where these players fit best so uh it's going to be interesting though to to find out where they end up because i think in in the case of both vallis and harold i I don't know that we have enough evidence yet to say for sure one way or the other necessarily although i feel like with vallis i feel pretty confident that he's not going to be able to stand up physically as a 4-3 defensive end so if that's the case he really needs to show well in those outside linebacker workouts and prove to teams that he can play in reverse, that he can play in space, because we saw last year with Michael Sam, once it became obvious that, that he was not going to be able to play outside linebacker, his stock bottomed out, and he fell to the late rounds after being one point being considered maybe in the top 100. So um, I, I still think we're missing a big piece of the puzzle with both of these guys, but both, but both very talented. Uh, while we're on the defensive line, I'm going to go to my next guy, and I'm going to talk about Oklahoma defensive tackle Jordan Phillips, uh, a player who hasn't got a lot of, of ink or buzz just yet, but I think that's going to change uh, as we go through the next few months here. Uh, he's a specimen, Shane. Uh, he, he's 6'6", 334 pounds, but this isn't a Terrence Cody situation. Uh, he he is very well proportioned. He looks more like a 300 pounder than a 330 pounder, and uh, I almost wonder if he could even play a five tech because he's such a great athlete for a guy that size. And and there's some minor things if you want to pick. Uh, he's on the ground a little too much for my taste. Uh, and, and I think he needs to be a little bit more consistent with his leverage. But playing nose tackle for Oklahoma, he showed the ability to to be stout at the point of attack and, and play two gaps and stuff the run. Uh, but also, he showed the ability to, to to be a little bit of a pass rusher. Now, he's not quite Leonard Williams, or he's not in that class, but he can make himself skinny and kind of sneak through that line and and, and blow up plays in the backfield as well. He's not just a a one-trick pony where he's a two-round run defender. He's got a little pass rush to him, and I I almost think of a guy like Haloti Nata, and that's why I kind of wondered if he could even play that five technique uh, in an odd front, because he is such a, a good athlete for a guy that size. Now, Maybe my biggest concern with him is he missed basically most of the 2013 season with a back injury. And Shane, you know, I always say when I hear backs, shoulders, red, the alarm goes off in my head because those are just those are injuries that are that are tough. They they can often be nagging and and I, I maybe lead to to his more career-ending, uh, or maybe career-ending injuries more so than even knee in this day and age. Uh, you just don't know with shoulders and back. So that's a concern, especially for someone like Phillips, who is so tall at 6'6". Uh, and like I said, there are some leverage issues at times. So I think the medical checks are going to be huge when it comes to Jordan Phillips. You have to get comfortable there, but talent-wise, I mean, you know, they always talk about in the NFL draft and the scouting world, the planet theory. There's only so many guys on the planet with that type of, of size and athleticism. And, I mean, this guy can move, not not only in a small area, but the, you watch him and, and he'll 
he'll get out to the flats. Uh, he'll, there was even times where, where he played in reverse a little bit at 6'6", 334. Uh, just such a unique prospect to watch. But, boy, I mean, like I say, he looks the part. Uh, for those who watched the Combine last year, if you remember Mike Pennell, I mean, that's how he looks. He is so well-proportioned for such a, a massive human being. Uh, very intriguing. I, I think he's a top 50 guy. And, and maybe higher. I think he's going to be in the mix uh, at the defensive tackle position. It's kind of Leonard Williams, and then who knows? Uh, I think there's a bunch of guys kind of in the conversation. Eddie Goldman from Florida State, Malcolm Brown from Texas, and I think Phillips is going to be right in that discussion as well, uh, assuming he checks out physically. So I would conservatively say top 50-ish, and, and he's not quite the freak that, say, Don Terry Poe was. I think he's a level below that. I don't think he's going to run a 5-flat 40-yard dash at that size or anything, but well above average athleticism for a, a player of his dimension. So conservatively, I'm going to say top 50, but if he snuck into round one, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, let me ask you this about him, because you mentioned some of the scheme fits of maybe he could play as a 5-technique Um do you, in today's NFL, I think we're seeing more and more nose tackles having to have some of that penetration, having to have some of that pass rush ability, collapsibility, which it sounds like Jordan Phillips definitely has and brings to the table. Um, what would you say, where would you feel most comfortable with him? What technique would you feel most comfortable with him? Uh, is he someone that, that can zero up in a 3-4 and, and take up? those multiple blockers and gaps can two gap or is he, is he someone that you would probably prefer if he's going to play nose tackle that you have him in a four three and you, you allow him to do some of the, the some of the collapsing and get into the backfield and get that penetration if, if he's not playing in, in a five technique role what where where really would you like to see him go if you could handpick a defense for him what would it be well, and, and I think because he does have that modicum of, of disruptive ability, he keeps himself in play for both 4-3 and 3-4 teams, which is key. It gives him more options on draft day. I, I tend to think he's going to end up as a 3-4 nose tackle, but if it were me, I almost like him as that meek in the mold of Haloti Nata because I, I think that would maybe be the best utilization of his rare athleticism for that size. Not only can he stack that edge, he's... And the other thing with him, too, is even when he can't get there, he gets those big, long arms up, and he disrupts those passing lanes on the interior. I saw a lot of bad balls when I was watching him, so that's something to keep in mind, too. I just think he'd be more disruptive and valuable on the edges as opposed to just sticking him in the middle and saying, okay, cover these two gaps and, and, and take up space and occupy blockers. I, I almost want to try to, to get that little bit extra out of him by playing him on the outside, so... Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if he wound up as a five technique. Like I say, I, I don't think he's. I think he's a notch below Nata athletically, but I, I see some similarities there. But uh, I guess gun to my head, I would lean towards him ending up as a three-four nose. But uh, a really intriguing guy, and, and there aren't many more impressive physical specimens in this draft at any position than Jordan Phillips of Oklahoma. Well, I'll move to my next guy and stick on the lines, but I'll move to the offensive line. And a player that recently declared I didn't know a whole lot about, I hadn't watched a whole lot about, so I put on just a couple games of Jeremiah Patassi, who is a junior who declared an offensive tackle, offensive lineman out of Utah. Um, he, he played – he played left tackle in, in 2013 and continued that in 2014, but this is a guy that's 6'6", 
330 pounds. He's a, a massive, just mammoth of a player uh, standing out there on the blind, the blind side in, in the Pac-12 in Utah. And I, you know, I came away pretty impressed with him. Now, he has played, he's, he's played at right tackle um, as a true freshman. He was all Pac-12 at right tackle. Uh, he's actually, they've tried him out at guard before. So he actually has experience at a, at a modicum of different offensive line positions. And uh, I, I was really intrigued because I thought, all right, this guy, I looked up his bio, 6'6", 330 pounds. I feel like I'm going to get kind of this, this dumpy player who's good in the run game and can't handle pass rushers very well. And, and that's not what I got at all. Um, he is he's this gigantic length that he uses really well and actually has feet that can move underneath him. I think there's a ton of upside uh, with him there. And I, I always struggle when you have these big players who in college play offensive tackle. You always want to just move them inside. And is, is that probably where he fits best? Absolutely. When you have a player that's this massive and uh, there is some functional upper body strength with it, you can move him. But what I like is he has the athletic ability um, in, his, in his kick slide that I really felt I want to see him at guard. I want to see him pull. I want to see him get out in front uh, of a runner that's going up the middle and see if you could actually use him as a left guard or right guard and, and pull into the middle or pull to the outside. I think he has the athletic ability to do it at 330 pounds. So I, I, I kind of fawned over him in the couple games that I watched of the, the possibilities of moving him inside and having someone that is uniquely athletically gifted um, and you could, you could do a lot of different things in the run game with. And, and I think he was pretty solid in the past game as well. You know, he um, kind of just, just uh, for comparison's sake, um, you know, he's, he's, he reminds me of um, uh, Phil Lodeholt uh, a lot. Uh, where Phil Lodeholt, a little bit bigger, you know, Phil Lodeholt was taller and a bigger guy um, who you said great run blocker, but there might be something there. And we've seen in the NFL Phil Lodeholt actually develop some of that athletic ability and be able to sit out there at right tackle. I don't think Patassi's going to be playing left tackle and, and manning a blind side, but, man, I think you kick him inside to guard, he'd be a dominant run stuffer, um, run performance, and open up those big holes. And I think teams would be surprised to see this guy out there actually moving around. Now, he's, he's a little bit wide. He doesn't always get the, the best leverage. Um, so sometimes he doesn't get the push that you necessarily want, especially when going up against – he actually didn't do as well going up against shorter players, players that, that weren't NFL players – did well against him when they got leverage or they were able to, to kind of sneak around him or when stunts are run on him. So I think there's still some football IQ questions, but um, man, when he's on, uh, he's absolutely dominant and knocking guys over and brutal. And, and that's the, that is the final thing that I'll say that I loved um, when I watched him was he had a killer instinct. He went for it. He got you down. He held you down. He knocked you down. He loved the pancake block. And I fall in love with those guys. So he's someone I look forward to watching a little bit more, and I'm really excited about. Well, I'm glad you brought this guy up because he's a player that I haven't done a whole lot of work on quite yet. So you talked about the position. I think that's 
you know, the big question mark here. And uh, I, I think we can probably safely rule out left tackle in the pros, but it's still a matter of right tackle or does he kick inside to guard? And you see that size, six six three thirty, and you think, well, if he goes inside, is he going to be a Mike Upati type of guard? But Upati is so physical and nasty and almost sound like your description, Shane, that he's a little bit more of a finesse player. Would you say that's fair to say? And uh, wh- where would you say if you had to, if you, if you're drafting for a team, where is he on your board? Is he at right tackle or is he at guard? And, and what type of scheme is he? A, is he a zone blocker? Is he a power run scheme? Where is his fit? I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a little limb. I, I think when people just look at him and say three thirty, they see, uh, he had uh, multiple pancake blocks in this game. I do think he's a little more – he is a little more finesse um, he, with the killer instinct, if that makes sense. You know, usually you think of just these power blockers, the guys with the killer instinct. But he's, he, he is finesse where he'll, he'll utilize his athleticism and utilize his lower body strength to – but doesn't stop. You know, he, he's not someone that takes a playoff. He's not someone that if, if he does knock you down, then he's going to move away. He's going to make sure that you stay down. So I, I actually kind of like him for a zone-blocking scheme inside at guard. Um, now, usually these big, big guys, it's not who you think of as zone blockers, but I think he has that athletic ability to be a dominant force when you put him in the zone and you let him play in his zone where he can move and pivot and then you can pull him and do a lot of different things with him. Uh, could he play tackle? Sure. I think there are schemes where he could play tackle. If you have a little more finesse, it's not his own blocking scheme, he could do it. Um, but to me, I want to move him inside the guard. I want to use him in different ways and uh, see what he can do. And I, w- I would love to see him in, in his own blocking scheme. I'd love to see him somewhere like Baltimore uh, where, where they adopted that this year and have some bigger offensive linemen. I think he would flourish uh, out there and be able to do a ton of things things get to that second level so i i'm I'm excited for him i need to watch more but uh, i'm excited from what i see initially well we each have one more player that we want to talk about and for my final guy and this player was really kind of the inspiration for the show because i i wanted to maybe highlight and we talked about some top guys too but i wanted to kind of highlight some of the maybe under the radar or lesser known underclassmen that people maybe aren't really familiar with quite yet. So my final guy is Massachusetts tight end Gene Sifrin. And this is a very intriguing story, so so bear with me a little bit. Uh, Sifrin's 27 years old, uh, so certainly older than the the, uh, the, the common prospect. Uh, in high school, he, he dropped out got his GED and went to work. Uh, he had a, a child and, and had to support his family. So uh, he basically walked away from sports. And, and one way or another, roundabout way, he wound up at a community college, at a junior college. Uh, I believe he played both football and basketball. Uh, he wound up leaving that junior college. I think there was an off-the-field issue there that's going to have to be investigated, but wound up at another junior college and, and just spent one year at UMass. Uh, and that was the 2014 season, but uh, had a good year uh, in his lone season of of Division One competition. Uh, Sifrin finished with 42 catches for 642 yards, six touchdowns. He averaged over 15 yards a catch, and he's basically a bulked up wide receiver. Uh, they list him at six seven, 250 pounds. Terrific athlete. Excellent ball skills. Uh, just 
just go. I I think if you just Google Gene Sifrin, it's uh, G E or J E A N. His last name is spelled S I F R I N. Just just Google his name and catch, and you're probably going to get it. Otherwise, you can look at my Twitter feed from uh, I think it was January 6th. I tweeted out the link. Uh, uh, there's a video of just an incredible touchdown catch he made, almost a, the Odell Beckham esque, where he was leaning back in the one hand. It was just incredible. Uh, rare athleticism and ball skills, but uh, on the negative side. Very finesse, uh, and I can't emphasize very enough. Very finesse, and and his e- effort and the results as a blocker were disappointing to say the least. Uh, he, he he didn't put much effort into it, and that's exactly the type of results he got out of it. So, but at, at the end of the day, I don't know that you're going to be drafting him to block anyways. That's not the type of player he is. You're going to draft him to be that vertical down the field playmaker at that tight end position that teams are kind of looking for these days, and. Uh, you know, Shane, I wouldn't be surprised if he comes off the board earlier than expected because this this isn't a great class of tight ends yet again. Uh, it, it was helped a little bit by the underclassmen that came out, but, boy, he's just going to offer so much more upside potential and talent than the other options that are going to be available on day three at the tight end position. I think I absolutely think he's a draftable prospect. I think worst case scenario, you invest a sixth or seventh round pick on him, even though he is 27. He still has potential and upside. His best football, I think, is still ahead of him. And, and right now, he's in the prime of his career athletically, and you're going to get his prime years on on a rookie contract. And I wouldn't even be shocked if somebody pulled the trigger in the middle rounds. Uh, maybe I, I don't know fourth round, but fifth round. I, I think it's in the I think it's in the cards and especially because once again, and we've talked, I've talked about this with a number of players, but he's just going to offer so much more at that position than any of the other options that are going to be available. I, I'm very intrigued by Gene Sifrin. If it weren't the age factor, I think he there's a chance he could go in the top 100. Uh, he's a fun player to watch as long as you can uh, not vomit when you try to watch the blocking. It's it's that bad. It's it, don't watch the blocking if if you uh it, it, it's that bad. But as a pass catcher, as a guy who can go down the field, go up and high point the ball. Oh boy, I mean he has some incredible rare skills at that position. Well, I got to ask you this, and it's it's always a question I hate getting asked, but I got to ask you anyway because we've we've seen such a, a a myriad of tight ends in the in drafts past. You have their blockers, you have your pass catchers, you have your two way players. Um, some of the words that you said to describe him or in his story and his background, that basketball thing always seems to pop up now for every tight end that's that's uh, coming out to the draft. Um, you have that amazing catch. Hey, what 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 is a comparison that you could make, um, taking the age out of it, and just from a skill set perspective? Because I feel like we've seen a lot of different uh, these pass catching tight ends from Julius Thomas to Ladarius Green to obviously Jimmy Jimmy Graham being the pinnacle. Um, how how would you compare his his skill set? Is there someone in the NFL that you think? Hey, if if he comes in and you get him right in his prime and he's ready to go, that he could potentially turn into. I I, he, I would maybe say a little bigger poor man's Devin Funchess. Uh, maybe is the way I'd term it. I mean, if you're a team that's looking that misses out on Devin Funchess in, in the first round or, or top fifty, maybe you you target a guy like Gene Sifrin, uh on the third day. So, uh, and I, I think there's I've heard comparisons of his situation to Julius Thomas, and 
And obviously the age is the big differentiating factor there. He's much older than Thomas was, much older than Jimmy Graham was. So so that's something teams are going to have to kind of reconcile when they're debating at what point do we take a chance on this guy. But, you know, he's he, he's just such a, a special athletic prospect. And, and I'm kind of making the same case for him that I did when Julius Thomas was coming out, Shane. And I talked about I thought Julius Thomas was going to go earlier than most, too, because once again, I mean, you look at the options that are going to be available. I mean, when you compare Gene Sifrin to, say, a Ben Koyak from Notre Dame or maybe a Nick Boyle from Delaware, I mean, it's no comparison in terms of the, 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 the athletic traits and, and the upside. I mean, he, he's far superior. Uh, it's just the age. And if he were 22 instead of 27, he'd be he's he'd be a lot higher on my board but as it is he could be a steal for someone on day three just like julius thomas wound up being a steal jimmy graham wound up being a steal i think there is a track record for for guys like sifrin those former basketball players with those basketball player skills to that that have been that have had uh, incredible impacts in the nfl in recent years so that's why i think at the very least he he's got a draftable grade for me you, i think you have to you're almost uh, obliged to take a, a flyer on someone with his talent at that position uh it's just a matter of what point is it the fourth fifth sixth seventh round uh that's to be determined but to me he's definitely a draftable prospect well, I, I will wrap this up with my last guy, and we can close things off. It is one of the more high-profile underclassmen to declare, but in the position that's a little muddled, and he is P.J. Williams, cornerback out of Florida State. He declared for the draft along with teammate Ronald Darby uh, for this, this very good seminal defense, and I, I, I really, really liked him watching him. I think we talked about him way back on the show a little bit, thinking how is his corner position going to turn out? Six feet tall, 196 pounds. Uh, he's big. And what, what I really like about P.J. Williams is how physical he is. 74 tackles this year, six and a half tackle for loss. Um, he kept his eyes in that backfield, and when there was a run play coming to his side, he didn't, he didn't back down. He, he went up and he smacked that running back in the mouth sometimes to, to more effect than others, but he's, he's a tough and big player that, that has good tackling technique. Um, but as a corner, you want that coverage. I think that's the main thing. And I think he's pretty good for his size. Uh, he's not the, the super fluid, long athlete that you feel like in the NFL – I can match him one-on-one -on -one with anyone, and he can run in a, in a foot race with them, and he can turn and cut with them. But I think from a physical perspective, if if a team like Jacksonville, like Seattle, um, the, where we're seeing these bigger corners, New Orleans starting to do it now, uh, guys pressing at the line of scrimmage, getting physical, but still having that athletic ability um, to, to have some makeup speed, I think Goodjoe Williams has that. And he's, he's the type of, of player and prospect – that I think looks good at this point in the process, that when, when you, you watch him and you, you're impressed by the physicality, but then when you, we look at the combine numbers and we look at some of the, the, the games where he didn't play as well and he got beat deep here um, and, and, and didn't make an adjustment here, then you start to kind of knock him down the board. So, I, you know, I struggle a little bit of where to put him. I think I still have a lot more work to do in this corner class. Um, it's, it's something that can be very difficult. But uh, all in all, I like P.J. Williams. I think he's a first-round prospect and uh, might be more of a late first round like Darquez Denard was last year, kind of fell in the process from where we thought. But uh, I think P.J. Williams is very, very good. 
Well, and and you hit on my big issue with Williams, and it's the same one I have with his teammate Ronald Darby. I think both of those guys are arguably as physically talented as any cover guy in this class, but my issue is the consistency. Uh, I think there's lapses in concentration there, and they don't always play up to that their immense talent levels. Uh, uh, more so, I think, Darby than Williams, but I've seen some of the issues with Williams as well. And Shane, you talked about how kind of muddled this cornerback class is. I mean, at this point, I guess probably Trey Waynes from Michigan State would be the, the, the favorite, but there isn't much of a consensus right at the very top of the position, let alone two, three, four, five. Where do you think you, you talked about you think PJ Williams is a first rounder? Where do you think he settles in in the cornerback pecking order? Do you think he's one? Do you think he's two, three? Uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm just wondering, do you think he could be the top corner off the board even? I think he could be. I, I think right now he's good. I mean, when he's really good and on and consistent, I think he is the best cornerback in this draft right now. Um, but as as you said and, and as I alluded to, when he's not, and there are times when he he got he gets beat. There in that that Oregon game, there are times when he got beat by players that should not beat him and should not be as good as him. That makes you have a big pause, and I think teams are not going to fare well with that. I don't think he will be the first corner off the board. I like him better than Darby. Um, I, I still ha- want to do a, dig a little bit more into to both of them when, when I find some film where I can see them during the snap and, and not just on TV. Um, but uh, but I do think that, that Wayne should probably go higher. I, I, would, I would slot him at number two. I, there are some other guys out there that, that we, we could talk about, I'm sure, we'll down the line, because it is very muddled of who is going to go. There's a lot of good seniors out there. Um, but I think Williams is going to be a top three corner. And I would probably, if I had to guess, if I had to bet money right now, you know, what, what number corner is he going to be off the board? I would guess number two. I, I don't think he'll be the first, but I think he'll be right up there. You think Jimmy Smith would maybe be a fair comparison? Uh, maybe not the character mm-hmm. questions that Jimmy Smith had, but just in terms of, yeah, you maybe don't see it as, as consistently on a play-to-play basis as you'd like, but, boy, he's got all the tools of a number one corner. You think that's a fair comparison? Yeah, I, I think I think that's a very, very good comparison because Jimmy Smith had that size, he had that physicality, and you knew he could match up with guys but didn't always do it. So I think that's Williams' upside, and we've seen uh, we've seen Jimmy Smith improve a lot in the NFL and play pretty darn good. So I think P.J. Williams could hit that. All right, last but not least, before we close out, we have to talk about the curious case of Cardell Jones, the Ohio State quarterback who uh, was just a, a revelation at the end of the season, especially in the playoffs, uh, led the Buckeyes to, or at least helped lead the Buckeyes to a national championship. And even though he's technically a sophomore in name, he would indeed be draft eligible if he decided to declare because he spent a year after high school at a prep school before arriving uh, with the Buckeyes. So let's start by talking just about the skill set, Shane, before we get into all the other minutiae with him. Uh, he's 6'5", he's 250, and, and honestly, watching him in the national championship game, the guy I kept thinking of was Big Ben, Ben Roethlisberger. Uh, just a, a powerhouse frame. I mean, there's that play where he just trucked over the 310-pound nose tackle for Oregon, ran him over for a first down. Uh, and, and even though he he's not necessarily a, a great runner 
he's more than mobile enough. He can pick up those those big first downs when you need him to. He can make plays with his feet, but very much uh, he's a pocket passer. He's a down the field vertical passer. Very strong arm. Did you think? I don't think it's a stretch, say Shane, that he'd have one of, if not the strongest arms in the 2015 NFL Draft if he entered. Uh, I, I was impressed with his accuracy in that national championship game. Now we're going to get into the experience, and 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 there are flaws as well. He's very inexperienced. Uh, he had some bad turnovers that the Ohio State was fortunate to overcome in that national championship game. But boy, is there a lot of potential, and and we'll we'll talk a little bit about about his prospects and his options. Give us a little bit of your take on his talent and his skill set. He's really really intriguing as as the third stringer that no one expected to do all this. But it's it's that size, man. I mean, you mentioned Big Ben. He he reminded me of uh, of Dante Culpepper when when Culpepper was having success in the NFL. You had that big frame, not a runner, but a player that if you wanted to take off and truck you, when Cardell Jones last night just trucked the nose tackle for a first down, that, that, that tells you all that you need to know uh, about that toughness and what he could bring to the table from an athletic perspective. Um, and and, and he's, he's talented. There's no doubt that he's, that he's talented, that he has the arm talent. And even some, some of the passes, some of the deep passes, pretty darn accurate. You know, I was impressed with his downfield accuracy. Uh, you can talk about the arm strength all day and the zip that he has on the ball, but you have to get that ball in the right place, and not just in the national championship, but also against Alabama and especially against Wisconsin. Um, yeah, he had a run game that defenses were paying attention to in all three of those games, but he made some really nice passes against Wisconsin that uh, that, that, that pulled Ohio State into a big lead. So, he, he that that's what's tough to evaluate because this is not a great quarterback class. So let's let's take Mariota and Winston out of it. They're going to go very high. Uh, after that, you have Brett Humley, who has been inconsistent. And I don't know if there's anyone else left that he, you could say has the upside of of Cardell Jones. If he had been playing all year and played like this all year, then I think we have a different conversation uh, about what what he could do and where he could go. But for for me, from a, a physical standpoint, he looked like an NFL quarterback, and it wasn't as if he was playing the first three games of the season against Miami of Ohio and uh, and and Florida International. You know, he played against. Wisconsin, Alabama, and Oregon, three very good teams who all were going to have defensive players that play at the next level. He was playing against legitimate talent. And if if there's a small sample size that you want to use, that would be the small sample size that I want to use. Those would be the three games for any quarterback that I would want to use, And and but that's all he has. So that's what's tough. I think from physically, if if he would come out next year, whether it's for Ohio State or someone else, and do the same thing all over again and play the same way, and we're talking about a first-round pick. We're talking probably about a high first-round pick if he could do that. Uh, but it, it's, it's just about that lack of experience and not knowing. Scott, I remember us doing this show first or second year when Logan Thomas was done with his sophomore season. It looked like a future number one overall pick because he had, he had the size, he had his converted tight end, he had the arm strength. And from, from then on, it was all a downhill spiral. That could be Cardell Jones. You want to take a chance if you're on if you're an NFL team that that these three games were a bit of a mirage, um, or or would you want to take that chance and draft him that this is what you're going to get and end up with a steal? Uh, if, if he if he does declare 
uh, man, it would be so much fun to, just to see how teams evaluate that and where he would go. Well, and you mentioned everyone's going to talk about the three games. He's only played in three and a half games. He only started three, but like you said, let's look at the competition. He wasn't playing Columbus Community College. He beat Wisconsin in the Big Ten championship game, and then he beat Alabama and Oregon in the college football playoffs and route to a national championship. So these weren't uh, weren't patsies that, that he was lining up and, and doing his damage against. And, and in those three starts, he completed 61.3% of his passes, averaged 247 yards a game, and had five touchdowns compared to only two interceptions, although fumbles in that national championship game have to be factored in there as well. And what makes this such an interesting situation, and, and probably unlike anything I can ever remember in covering the draft, and I've been doing it for quite some time, is he basically has three options, but there's really no guarantees with any of them. He could go pro. He could return to Ohio State, but if he does that, not only is there no guarantee he's going to be the starting quarterback at Ohio State next year, he might not even be the backup. I mean, there's a chance he could be behind both Miller and Barrett next year. He could transfer to another program, but there's risks with that as well, downside. Uh, Let's say he goes back for another year, Ohio State or somewhere else. He's going to open himself up to overanalysis. He is a hot name right now. Everybody knows him. We are going to be paying very close attention to every single thing he does next year if he goes back to college. Ask Teddy Bridgewater how that worked out for him. Ask Brady Quinn. Ask Matt Lyon. There's lots of examples of especially quarterbacks where overanalysis takes its toll, so he risks that. He risks, if he goes to Ohio State, he risks not even playing maybe next year. He risks what if he plays bad wherever he plays? What if he plays bad? Right now, it's nothing but positives, basically. What if he puts some bad film uh, on tape? Uh, what if he gets hurt? Uh, so considering all those factors, I think there's a lot to be said in the NFL draft for striking while the iron is hot. There, when you have that buzz, when you have that momentum like Cardale Jones has right now, I, I think you take advantage of the opportunity. And, and if he was going to be guaranteed to be the starting quarterback for the Buckeyes next year, then by all means, I'd be go back, you know, show another year, maybe be the number one overall pick, maybe be the top 10 pick in the 2016 NFL draft. But that may not happen. And, and I think the potential risks might outweigh the the potential rewards. And, and think of it this way. Yeah, let's say he comes out and he doesn't, He's probably not going to be a first-round pick, let's, let's face that. But let's, let's say he goes beyond the first round. Well, um, a lot of people will look at that, oh, it's a negative, but there are some positive spins to put on that as well. The biggest maybe being that it's a shorter contract. He's only going to be locked in for four years, and then he's going to be eligible for a big payday. Look what happened with Colin Kaepernick. Look what happened with Andy Dalton. Those guys got paid uh, earlier than some of their peers that went in the first round because they got that shorter rookie contract. So if he comes in and performs like a great starting quarterback, he's going to get paid earlier than he would have if he went in the first round at whatever year. And the other factor, too, is if he goes beyond the first round, he's going to have a much better chance of landing with a better team which is in turn going to give him a better chance to succeed in the NFL. Uh, I, I think Blake Bortles showed us it can be tough going uh, when you're playing for a team like the Jacksonville Jaguars, whereas Cardell Jones, beyond the first round, maybe if he ends up with a team like the Rams or the Texans, two teams that are already really good, they're just missing that quarterback. Or how about the Browns or the Bengals, two in-state teams? How about the Eagles? How about the Cardinals? How about a successor for Drew Brees in, in New Orleans? I mean, 
and, and I just, you talked about, Shane, we're going to have Winston and Mariota at the top of the draft. Both are going to go in the top 10. Then you have a pretty big drop-off to Brett Hundley from UCLA. But, I mean, I'd have a hard time not making Cardale Jones at least my fourth quarterback in this draft, maybe even third. Uh, I guess I'd slightly lean towards Hundley just because there's a little bit of a, more of a track record there. But Cardale Jones has as much potential as any quarterback in this draft probably Winston and Mariota included. And I just, I, I saw some people talking today about how they thought he'd be a day three pick. I, I just can't see that Shane. I don't know how he escapes day two. If he enters this draft, uh, considering that they're already, the supply is not going to meet the demand for quarterbacks in this draft. And, and once again, I, I, I hate to keep making this point, but boy, is he going to be so much more intriguing than any of the other options that are going to be available at that point, after you get past Winston Mariota. I mean, when you're deciding between Cardale Jones and, say, Bryce Petty or Garrett Grayson or Shane Carden or Sean Mannion or Cody Fajardo, I mean, is that even a discussion, Shane? I mean, he's just in another stratosphere in terms of his talent level and, and upside. So I can't imagine him escaping the second or third round if he declares. Can you? No, I, I absolutely cannot. I think he's a top 100 pick if he leaves right now. And and the tough thing is, is this came so suddenly, it's not like he could have asked the NFL, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's not like he could have gotten feedback on what he can do better or what can happen. He, he came out before the whole process was over. He didn't even play at that point. Um, so I think that becomes difficult, too. I think he would go in the top 100, and I think he would compete with Hunley um, for, to be that third quarterback off the board. I do. I, I kind of think – teams would lean towards having less of the unknown of moving towards Hunley for sure. But you can't tell me that there's not going to be a team or two that fell in love with him watching that game. Cause every, there were every NFL team was there. Uh, there were GM scouts watching it. Uh, they're going to put that back on and someone somewhere will fall in love with him and, and he'll go pretty high. And, and the other, the other factor is, uh, which Scott, you hit on the alternatives. I think another quick factor is age. All right? and he's he's 22 years old, I believe. I, I I can't really find good confirmation on that, but he is older. I think he did go to prep school, and um, with that comes okay. Let's say you do want to transfer if he's if he's not going to start or has to compete. If he transfers in FBS, then he has to sit out a year, and he'll be 23. Then he then he plays till he's 24. He goes to the NFL, uh, the NFL when he's what 25. You know that's 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 way too late. You go down uh, a level. Um, does that necessarily help you? Maybe that's the best option. Honestly, it, it seems to me that declaring for the NFL is his best option if that's the goal. If his goal is to be a professional football player, then if you if there's a chance you're going to sit on the bench at Ohio State or you're going to have to transfer and sit out somewhere, why not sit on the bench and learn in in the NFL? Um, that that would be the ideal for me. And I, I, I it's selfish. I want to see him declare for the draft. I want to see what happens. I want this story to keep going because I think it's it's so unique where a player – has has dominated in three games against the best competition in college football, and no one has any idea what to do. 
Well, and I mentioned teams like the Rams and Texans. They're de- desperate for a, a franchise signal caller. I just can't see. I would have to think they'd be overjoyed to take a chance on a talent like Cardale Jones in the second or the third round, especially considering they're probably not going to have a shot at a talent like that anytime soon. They just have too much else on their team to really bottom out and be picking at the, the very top of the draft. So this might be their chance to get a a, a a, a franchise quarterback beyond the, the, the top 10 overall. But uh, my last question for you, Shane, on Cardale Jones, and for those who don't know, Shane is an Ohio State alum. Congratulations on your championship, by the way. But let's say Cardale Jones does not enter the 2015 NFL draft. What do you see him doing, and how do you foresee that Ohio State quarterback situation shaking out with him, JT Barrett, Braxton Miller? I mean, something's got to give, right? If I had to make a prediction right now, it would be that Braxton Miller transfers because he can transfer without penalty. He has graduated from Ohio State going to grad school. So you have teams like LSU, like Florida State, that I'm sure would take him in a heartbeat. And I think think he'll transfer because I I, honestly – I, even though he's won Big Ten Player of the Year two years in a row, I think he's probably third on the pecking order. And if, if Cardell Jones and JT Barrett stay, which if Jones doesn't declare, I, I kind of lean towards that he's, he would stay and that they would agree for both players to have an open competition in spring. And whoever's better is who's going to play. And whoever's not, that that's kind of it. Um, but – it's it's tough because Jones is older, so it's not like you could play Barrett for a year and then and then he's gonna he's gonna move on to to the NFL or to to life past that if if, if he even is an NFL player. And Jones is already going to be kind of too old to 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 make that jump and still have those NFL aspirations. I think it's a tough situation, and to me, I I don't think it's maybe the right call. If I, if I was him, I'd either jump the NFL or I transfer down a level to try to have a good year and then do it. Um, but if, if both of those guys come back, I think it'd just be an open competition and hope that uh, that whoever emerges uh, plays well for the team. Well, it, it, like I say, it's one of the more interesting situations I can recall for an underclassman, and, and I don't. And well, I guess I envy he's got he's 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 in a, a a good position where he has options, but it's going to be a really tough decision, especially on and like you you alluded to, Shane, such a a short timeline. I mean, he basically has two, three days to make this life-altering decision and gather information, but I'm sure he's going to get help from Urban Meyer, and, and, and he's going to um, get the information he needs to make the best decision for himself, but yeah, like I say, I mean, if he asked me, I, I guess I'd, I'd tell him to strike while the iron is hot, uh, because he certainly has that buzz and, and positive momentum right now. So, with that, I think we are going to call it a show. Uh, as always, you can follow me on Twitter, at Draft Countdown. Shane, your Twitter handle is at Shane P. Hallam. So you can follow us there. Uh, check out our websites, draftcountdown.com, drafttv.com. We're, of course, tracking all of these underclassmen decisions. Uh, hope you enjoyed the show tonight. Uh, I really enjoyed chatting about some of these underclassmen. And, and we'll hit, if we didn't mention your, your guy or somebody you want to hear about, you know, drop us a line, let us know. We'll, we'll get to them. There's still a few months here before draft day, so there's plenty of time to discuss everyone. But uh, this was kind of just the first bite out of the underclassmen apple to, to kind of brush the surface on some, some top guys, some lesser-known guys. Uh, Uh, Hope everybody enjoyed it. And with that, we're going to call it a show. And as of right now, there are 106 days, 21 hours, 3 minutes, and 7 seconds left until the 2015 NFL Draft. Tick-tock.